Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, would you uh, pray with me as we get started here this morning? Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word that we just heard read to us this morning. We pray that your words would sink down deep into our hearts, Lord, that, that they would change us. Lord, we pray this morning that this message would not be about me or my words or my ideas, but about you and your glory, your power, your majesty, and your dominion. Lord, direct our hearts and our thoughts to you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, begin a new sermon series here this morning uh, on the book of Ephesians, I want to start by reading a story. Androculus was cold and tired. Having made the long journey across the Aegean Sea from Athens, his men were hungry, and they were looking to the young prince for direction. He could feel the weight of their stairs, and he shifted his, foot, his weight anxiously from one foot to the other as he surveyed the land. Rocks, trees, some rolling hills leading into mountains in the distance. Where should they establish a base of operations for conquering this new land? As his eyes scanned the dying light on the horizon, he realized there was no use marching any further today. Turning to the men, he ordered them to set up camp overnight. As dusk settled into darkness, Androculus sat on a large flat rock, absently poking one of the small cooking fires with a stick. What was it the Oracle of Delphi had said? Something, something about a fish and a boar leading the way. What could that possibly mean? The oracle had seemed so certain, but here they were in a completely foreign land, not exactly lost, but with no clear direction regarding next steps. If he didn't come up with something soon, his men might begin to turn on him. Suddenly, there was a commotion at a neighboring fire. One of his men jumped up, startled, and started hitting the ground with a large stick. The other started yelling in confusion. As Androculus grew closer, he could see something flopping and bouncing across the ground. The man was screaming and banging at it wildly, kicking up the coals from the fire, which started flying everywhere. In an instant, one of the coals leapt from the fire into a nearby bush, which erupted almost immediately into flame. The men shielded their eyes from the sudden burst of light, more yelling, and then out of nowhere, a high-pitched squealing sound came from the bush. A moment later, a giant boar burst out of the fiery bush, raced across the campsite, and disappeared into the night. Without stopping to think about what he was doing, Androculus pulled out his sword, and he chased after the boar. Several of his men followed, darting through the bushes, chasing the terrified animal. He was running so fast that he almost ran straight over the boar when he caught up to it, that inexplicably stopped abruptly on reaching a clearing. Barely slowing down, Androculus just had time to drop the tip of his sword and in one swift movement thrust it into the boar's side. His men piled into the clearing behind him, surveying the scene in wonder. 
The boar lay dead at the prince's feet. This was a sign the oracle had predicted. A fish had fallen out of one of the frying pans, and as the men frantically tried to kill it, they set fire to the bush, startling the boar, which then led them to this clearing. This must be the spot the gods wanted them to choose. This is where they would build their new home. This would be Ephesus. At least, that's the way one ancient legend goes. Ephesus was founded by the Greek prince Androculus, fulfilling his destiny as predicted by the Oracle of Delphi as he sent into a foreign land. Of course, others argue that Ephesus was perhaps founded by the fierce Amazon warriors, the, the female, all-female Amazon warriors from the region of Anatolia, that's modern-day Turkey, a city founded to honor the mother god that they worshipped. Either way, over a thousand years later, Paul would find himself walking the streets of what became one of the most important cities in all of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome and Athens, looking for opportunities to share the gospel and bring people to faith in Jesus, confronting the deeply rooted pagan worship that so consumed and enveloped the city. And even after leaving, Paul retained such a deep love and concern for the churches he helped establish there. Such that years later, even when he found himself in prison in Rome, he's thinking about these churches and these young believers in Ephesus. And so he takes up his pen and he writes one of the most beautiful and insightful and theologically rich letters in the New Testament. Ephesians, the subject of our next sermon series. But now why should we study the book of, Hebrew, uh, of Ephesians? It's a beautiful book, it's an amazing book, but why Ephesians right now? A couple of reasons. First, in times of chaos and uncertainty, this is a book that encourages us to trust in God. You know, for almost a month now, the news has been filled with stories of, of the escalating conflict in Gaza. The death toll keeps rising. The fighting continues unabated. Neighboring countries seem poised to get involved and make it even more volatile. Closer to home, we have injuries and sicknesses, Ill illnesses that wreak havoc on our bodies. Relationships are strained to the point of breaking. Anxiety, fear, stress claw away at our joy and peace. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, the days are evil. They're evil. So is God still in control? How should we live? What should we do? I love Ephesians because it grounds us in the spiritual reality that God is still on the throne, truly in control of all creation. He is over all, through all, and in all, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 6. But secondly, in a time of conflict and division, Ephesians is a book that encourages unity in Christ. Political tension seems to have be ratcheting up more and more and more over the last decade, right? Disagreements now seem like existential threats. The differences seem insurmountable. The emotions run too deep. Social media just throws gasoline on the, the fire of discontent. 
Can we handle any more stress in our lives before we break? Is any kind of peace still possible? And so I love Ephesians, secondly, because it gives me hope for unity in times of incredible division, and it gives a vision for peace in times of conflict. Not only will we read of the work Jesus does to reconcile us vertically with God, but also Paul will speak at length regarding the unity that we now have horizontally among each other in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we study Ephesians, we'll be reminded over and over and over again that we are one church in Christ. Our political beliefs don't unite us. Our cultural uh, practices don't unite us. Our love for homeschooling doesn't unite us. It's the blood of Jesus Christ alone that unites us. More than that, it's his spirit who then holds us together, holds our marriages together, holds our families together, holds our church together in Christ alone. Now today we're going to look at only the first two verses uh, of, of Ephesians, and we're going to see that although this feels like a generic letter opening, much like so many others of Paul, I want you to see three two truths in the text today. That you are sent by Christ, your identity is in Christ, and your strength comes from Christ. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, truth I want you to see in this opening greeting is you are sent by Christ. Now Paul's path to ministry was not exactly the usual one, if there even is such a thing as a usual path to ministry. He describes himself in 1 Corinthians 15 as the least of the apostles, as one untimely born. He was not one of the 12 original disciples. He was not uh, around for Jesus' earthly ministry. Worse than that, he persecuted the church of God in his own words for a long time before finally encountering the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He wasn't initially one of the sort of capital A apostles who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But then God met him on that road, and God then spoke to him through the words of Ananias, giving Paul his new commission to be God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, Acts 9.15. Paul was told it was God's will for him to be a witness to everyone of what he had seen and heard, Acts 22, 15. And so Paul went. God says, go, and so I'm going to go. That's what an apostle does. And for Paul, this was a clear calling from God to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
Romans 1.5. In other words, although he took his message to anyone who would listen, he felt a special calling to the Gentiles, the peoples, the nations. And his ministry involved extensive travel. Some people estimate somewhere between 10 and 15,000 miles over the course of his many journeys. And it was towards the end of his second missionary journey that Paul finally made it to Ephesus. You know, we learn from Acts 18 that Paul had been preaching and teaching in the Greek city of Corinth near Athens. If you're familiar, this is Greece here. This is Athens, Corinth, just there. So he'd been preaching and teaching in Corinth for some time, working closely with Priscilla and Aquila. However, after a time, they left Corinth, and they, they went across the Aegean Sea here, over here to Ephesus. On this slide, you can see a, a view of the city looking west, out towards the Aegean Sea. And if you could keep looking past that horizon, you would see Corinth. Now, Priscilla and Aquila stayed in Ephesus, set up their tent-making business again. But Paul, meanwhile, he went straight to the local synagogue and started addressing the Jews. Their ministry seemed to pique their interest initially, and they, they wanted Paul. Stay longer. We want to hear more. But Paul on taking leave of them, said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail again from Ephesus. Now God indeed, did indeed will for him to return. And so Paul came back not long afterwards as part of his third missionary journey, perhaps somewhere around the mid-50s AD. And this time he would stay for two and a half years in the city of Ephesus, a long season of ministry that Paul, uh, Luke records for us in Acts 19. Now, Ephesus, as you can see by this time, was a massive city. Here's a view from the, the opposite direction, looking inland. Historians estimate maybe somewhere around a quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus at the time, 250,000 people. Ephesus was a, a huge port on the western coast of, of Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. Now, since its founding in 1000 BC, the city had passed through the hands of Greek rulers and then Persian rulers and Anatolian rulers. But by the time of Paul, Ephesus was a Roman city and had been under Roman control for almost 200 years. So they had a stadium. You can see they've got a, a stadium over here and they've got these these marketplaces here, and they've got a theaters and baths and temples and, and everything you could imagine. One of the uh, main streets, which you can still walk on today, was apparently lit by oil to torches all down on these huge columns, which was very rare in ancient cities at the time. A sewer system directed the waste underneath the street so you wouldn't have to walk on it. In a funny quirk of history, one of the few buildings that did actually survive the destruction of time is the latrine. So <laughs> you can still see that, uh, still fully, I don't know if it's fully functional, but it's in one piece at least. They kind of frown on tourists testing it out. Uh, the, as a massive stadium carved into the side of one of the hills, incredibly well-preserved, 25,000 people could sit in that, state, in that theater. And the acoustics are incredible. They still do concerts there today. 
Much of the city is still waiting excavation, but, but archaeologists have uncovered these beautiful home, terraced homes built into the sides of the hills there with these incredible mosaic floors and, and intricate tile work. I think of uh, Paul's parting words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 where he says, I, 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 I didn't neglect from preaching the word of God to you in public and from house to house. Perhaps homes like these on the hills around Ephesus, maybe even on those floors. Long after the Apostle Paul left, it's possible that the, uh, uh, the Apostle John moved to Ephesus. We don't have any biblical account of such a visit, but accounts from the church fathers link him with the city of Ephesus which would make sense given his familiarity with the churches of that region and the fact that he was then exiled to Patmos, which is an island very nearby. Either way, this was the context for Paul's ministry, a huge, bustling city, an ancient trading post that functioned as a key link between Asia and Greece. And although they have yet to find any ruins of it, we know from Acts 19.8 that the first place Paul went on returning back to Ephesus was that synagogue where he had been asked to stay and speak. But on this second visit, after three months of hard labor there with little to no fruit to show, Paul withdrew from the synagogue and moved to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And again, we don't have a slide. They haven't uncovered that yet. But we know that pre Paul preached in this hall for two years until, as Luke records it, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul was sent as an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and he worked hard to fulfill that calling in this massive city where few, if any, people knew the name of Christ. As I think about my own context for ministry, it's nowhere near as grand as Paul's. My calling sometimes feels far less clear and obvious. God's will, much less precise. And yet, while we, none of us will be sort of capital A apostles, like Paul and the disciples, we've nevertheless all been commissioned with a similar task, to proclaim the name of Jesus to an unbelieving world. We have been sent with this message of good news. Like Paul, we've been authorized by God. We've been directed by God to bring this message to those around us. So I can't tell you what career you should choose, but I can guarantee that it is God's will his clearly stated will for you to share the gospel with those around you. If you've been blessed with children or grandchildren, to teach and train them to love Jesus. Uh, here in the church, to disciple each other, to help each other, to, to grow in our faith and Christlikeness. In the world, to evangelize the lost in our neighborhoods and communities. And like Paul, to move into that work not in fear, but with confidence, with assurance, even when it doesn't seem to be going according to plan. Because in the end, according to plan means God's plan, not ours. Paul had the ability to see the difference between the two. And as they look over Paul's ministry in Ephesus, 
I'm challenged to do the same, to be flexible in the ups and downs and to keep pressing on in the face of challenges and difficulties. You are sent by God. Press into that work with boldness and with courage. The second truth I want you to see from these opening words in his letter to the Ephesians is that your identity is in Christ. Now, we were never meant to know the name Herostratus. We have a little wood carving here of him on the, on, on the screen. We were never meant to know his name. His crime was so evil, his deeds so wicked, that after he was executed, the rulers of Ephesus instituted a new law that banned any mention of his name. You can clearly see how effective that was, because <laughs> we're still talking about him today. But what crime did he commit that was so awful? Well, in the middle of July, 350 years before Christ, on the day actually that Alexander the Great was born, he started a fire in the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, burning the entire building to the ground. You can see in the wood carving, there's temple here, and the people are scurrying around, and the flames coming up the back there. His symbol here is a torch with the fire. His hair is styled to look like flames, pyromaniac. Now, Artemis had been the chief and most important god in Ephesus since its founding almost a thousand years before Christ was born. The cult of Artemis was powerful, blending together all these different elements of both Greek and Anatolian or Turkish religious beliefs concerning hunting and fertility and mother goddess type worship. And although there were many other gods and temples in Ephesus, Artemis was by far the most significant. So burning her temple to the ground was the most heinous act of treason imaginable, striking at the very core of their identity as a city. Now, the temple that stood at the time of Paul had begun, had begun construction shortly after that fire, so about 300 years before Paul arrived on the scene. And by the time of Paul, it was an enormous building, counted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. According to uh, Professor Harold Hayner, it was about 360 feet long and 180 feet wide. That's a little bit bigger than a football field. And the pillars, perhaps 100 feet tall. That's as tall as a 10-story building. This is a, a model that they built uh, nearby. It's hard to believe just how big it is, but from all the historical records that we have, it does indeed seem to have been just that gigantic. So it's not surprising that the building was so well known. It was an impressive structure that attracted people from all around the Mediterranean and dominated the religious life of the city. Experts list an inscription from Ephesus that says, the goddess Artemis rules our city. That was their motto. And you could see why they felt that way. So living in Ephesus meant living under the shadow of this mighty edifice and everything it stood for. 
Now, much like the legend I recounted at the beginning of this sermon, Artemis was just a fiction, right? Her, her statues just made of marble and stone. But behind these false idols stood very real and dangerous demonic forces that were opposed to Christ, opposed to the gospel, opposed to Christianity, opposed to the early church. The account in Acts 19 of the failed exorcism by the seven sons of Sceva gives a window into the, the spiritual climate of the city where demonic forces ran rampant, uncontrolled. But now look again at our text and Paul's opening words. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul begins his letter by situating his readers between two radically different worlds. On the one hand, these young believers live in the Ephesus ruled by Artemis and all the demonic activity that she represented. But on the other hand, as, as followers of Jesus, they're no longer trapped in slavery to such forces. Paul labels them here as saints, meaning they're holy, they're set apart. They are those who are, who are faithful to Christ in the middle of a city that was built around this cult of Artemis. Unlike our common usage of the word today, uh, the word saint didn't describe people who were sort of exceptionally hope, uh, special and religiously perfect. It was just a common way to talk about normal, everyday Christians like you and me. In fact, because the word saint has such a different meaning today, the NIV actually translates this greeting as to God's holy people, which I think is a much clearer way to, to express the intended meaning, to God's holy people who are in Ephesus. Just as God's people in the Old Testament were called to be holy and set apart, so too were followers of Jesus now named and set apart as holy not because of any inherent goodness that they possessed in and of themselves, but simply through their identification with Jesus. So saints were not perfect. They were just people like you and me. But, but even there, to call them holy didn't mean they'd sort of reach the pinnacle of their spiritual lives and could just rest on their, their laurels. Paul is going to, even in this letter, call them to press on and continue striving for holiness in every aspect of their lives. But as Paul says, the crucial matter was that they were faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, they had placed their faith, their trust in Jesus, and they continued to do so. This is the dual existence they lived with. The believers were physically in Ephesus, but far more significantly, they were in Christ. They were those people who expressed their trust in Jesus and therefore were fully united with him. They lived their daily lives in the world of idols and, and temples, but their identity was firmly rooted in Christ and Christ alone. An enormously difficult task in a city that was so completely dominated by magic and superstition and idol worship. The temple, to me, is a reminder that there was never a time when being a Christian was easy. We've always lived as strangers and sojourners, exiles in a world opposed to Christ. We continue to live with the same dual identity as the Ephesians. We are saints living in, in Wheaton, or saints living in Winfield, or Carroll Stream, or Aurora, or, 
or wherever else. And that physical, geographical location carries with it all kinds of challenges. Political, cultural, and social pressures squeeze in on us from all sides. The gods of this age no longer live in massive marble temples, but they are no less pervasive and powerful and dangerous. So how can we stand firm in our true identity as citizens of a different kingdom? How can we resist the challenges posed by the world around us? How will we display our trust in Jesus in a world where Christianity is increasingly a minority position? If all of that seems challenging and overwhelming, I want you to take heart by looking at this, this slide. For all the pomp and splendor of the original temple of Artemis, this is all that's left standing of it today. One sad, lonely, lopsided pillar reconstructed using just random pieces they found scattered in the fields around the city. Frankly, it's kind of pathetic. But in a way, it's also a powerful reminder that Christ has truly conquered all his enemies, trampling them underfoot. A reminder that God will ultimately prevail over all evil, both physical and spiritual. And we therefore have nothing left to fear. Now, the third and, and final truth I want you to see from our greeting today is this. Your strength comes from Christ. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was a common greeting from Paul. We find it in Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon. I mean, it's everywhere. But don't let familiarity minimize the impact of these profound and significant words. The typical Greek greeting of the time in letters was a more generic word that just meant rejoice which in Greek sounds very similar to the word for grace, but was nowhere near as significant. Among Jews, the greeting was often mercy and peace. But Paul embraced this new and uniquely Christian greeting, stressing instead the grace which stands at the heart of the gospel, grace which will be a focal point of this letter, appearing 12 times throughout the course of these six chapters, grace, which will be the highlight, the, the pinnacle of chapter two, where Paul emphasizes, he says twice, by grace you have been saved by faith. By grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul would stress this message over and over and over again. Salvation is not of our own doing. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work our way into God's good graces. We don't earn it. We don't create it. We don't make it. It is handed to us freely, he says, as a gift. Such grace continues to shock and astound. It flies in the face of everything that we know about the way the world works. 
Why did every other part of my life I have to work my way to the top? I have to earn whatever I want to get. Nothing is handed out for free. Not a school, not on any sports team, not at any job, not anywhere. This was even the way of Artemis and the other Greek gods, right? They bestowed their favor based on your good works, on the quality of your offerings, on the degree of your devotion. And even then, the gods could frequently be fickle, sometimes blessing, sometimes cursing, sometimes just messing with people, just for fun. But Jesus stood apart from all this as radically different, showering grace on his followers not just for that moment of salvation, but for daily living as well, freely and willingly and generously and abundantly giving them all that they needed to live out their calling as followers of Jesus. Now, obviously, if you want to be a star football player, you are going to have to work. God's grace doesn't enable you to just sit on the couch and absorb athletic ability somehow. Right? Grace isn't a path to an easy A that avoids studying. But what Christ did was free us from the never-ending cycle of needing to constantly prove ourselves over and over and over again. He frees us from the hopeless search for, for meaning and purpose in the grades that we get at school or the achievements that we collect. Grace says, to us at one and the same time. Look, I, Jesus, am enough. You don't need to look any further. And grace says, likewise, you, Jonathan, are enough just the way I made you. You don't need to keep striving to be somebody else. And such grace brings a peace that we will never find apart from Christ. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Peace first and foremost with God, right? Reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. We're going to read about that in the, in the weeks ahead. Entrance into his presence. But, but then secondly, also peace with other believers. Peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus himself is our peace. The source of our unity. Not just the absence of hostility, the absence of fighting, but a sense of wholeness and, and oneness that defies understanding. A union in the church that is special and unique. A union in our marriages that is special and unique. A, a sense of unity and wholeness in our, in our families that is special and unique, that defies understanding, that can only be created by God and it's sustained through the power of his Holy Spirit. In other words, God gives us what we need and what we cannot create under our own strength or power. He fortifies us. He strengthens us. He empowers us and helps us, pouring out his grace, bringing us peace. Look, the obligations that come with being sent by God to live in a world that is hostile to Jesus is enormous. We're weak. We're inconsistent in our faith. We are racked with guilt over our failures and frequently trapped by shame over our past. But into that doubt and fear, God offers us grace and peace every day, sometimes multiple times during the day, grace 
and peace. Grace and peace. That's the rhythm of our lives as followers of Jesus. I think of someone uh, uh, rowing across a, an open lake. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Except I'm not moving under the, my, the power of my own strength, but driven along by the power that comes from God our Father and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. And so my closing prayer for you today as we wrap this up is that God's grace and peace may provide the strength that leads you forward into whatever lies ahead this week. You've been sent by God. Your identity is in Christ. And your strength comes from Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for Paul, this man whose life you turned upside down. Lord, for his willingness to step out in, in faith and trust, to follow you into dark places where he knew only opposition and trial and suffering and pain and struggle. We thank you for his confidence in you that allowed him to enter into cities filled with spiritual darkness and demonic activity. We thank you for working through him to establish churches that grew and spread and helped to see your word and your church expand. And Lord, as we consider our own calling today, I pray that you would help us to have even a tiny amount of that same boldness and confidence, that you would empower us through your spirit to live as those sent out into this world and that we would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.